go ahead and grab a seat, my friends. Thank you, worship team. For those of you who couldn't make it Friday night, you have no idea probably how exhausted they are because they did a 90-minute session on Friday night, which was wonderful. And then uh, they're back here this morning. Although I did notice we repeated some songs. Can we work on that next time? Um, I want new songs every week. I'm kidding. I don't want new songs every week. I kind of like the ones I already know. And even the ones I know, I don't sing the correct words to if the words aren't up there. So some people are like, why are you so adamant about words being up? I can't sing the correct words when they're up there. I certainly can't if they're not. Um, I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope you're doing well. I don't just say that because when I'm here during the week walking around this empty room, it's lonely. But I say it because I believe that we experience God in community. Um, and if you think I'm kidding, you can ask uh, those who come by. I, I often, if I'm in the office, I try to spend an hour in this room during the day. I'm not in the office every day. Uh, usually I'm here three days a week, but I try to spend an hour in here. But because of my short attention span, it's actually usually like nine, seven-minute sessions in here, walking around praying, but just I get up and I walk around and I pray, and I pray through here, not in some mystical way, but in a way that I believe that God's presence is here. I believe that God's presence is where we are, but I believe that there's something about this space. Um, I believe that when we dedicate a space to God, that that space is dedicated to Him. And so, know that throughout the week, I really am praying for you. As, as my friends, as my congregation, as the people I worship with, praying for you and praying that God will just meet you right where you are. Today we're going to talk about, this week and next week, we're talking about the biblical prophecies of Jesus' death, which some people see as gruesome. I once had a parent get really upset with me that I talked about the crucifixion of Jesus because it was barbaric, and they didn't want their child to grow up barbaric. And it made me sad because I thought, you kind of missed the point. Because at the time, their child was really struggling. It was, they were putting their kid to bed at night, and their child was struggling with it. And I told her right away, oh, I talked about the resurrection also. And they're like, yeah, but still you talked about death. And I was like, you're missing the point. Without Jesus' death, what we do here, it's just ritual. And ritual becomes meaningless. If there's no greater purpose than, well, I feel good because I sang a little bit and I've atoned for something, then we're missing it. So this week and next week, I am talking about the biblical prophecies of Jesus' death. If you didn't know that and you showed up and you're now appalled, you should have read your weekly email, I warned you. Um, I'm going to cover three this week and three next week as we lead into then the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, and, um, and Easter. So Easter's like the big one for the church, in case you didn't know that. This is our big one. Christmas is great, and we love Christmas, but without Easter, Christmas becomes irrelevant. Without the death and the resurrection, the birth is meaningless. And um, I love the pageantry and the traditions that go with Christmas. I love the lights and the decor, and it draws people in. But the hope of Easter is the reason we do it. The hope of Easter is what we hold on to. And so um, we're going to look at just some of the prophecies this week and next week. And I want you to know, this is not by any means an extensive list. There's uh, over 100 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus' life, uh, including his birth, his death, his resurrection. But there's between, depending on how you interpret the text and how you read the text, there's between 25 and 30 prophecies specifically dealing with the death, the resurrection, that portion of his life. 
So we got over two dozen conservatively saying, we've got these that really deal with, this is who the man was. This is what people said, and this is what happened. And here's how it correlates. So today, we've got a lot of scriptures. I'm going to be giving them pretty quick, but they'll be up here on the screen if you want to jot them down. And our first one today is out of Isaiah 53, chapter 53, verse 3, and it says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. What it's saying is they hide their faces because they're embarrassed to be seen with him. They're embarrassed to be known, associated with him. That's how he was treated. The fulfillment comes in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And here's what it says. It says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to people that were of his people and his culture, and they didn't even know him or receive him. So I've got three different things that help us understand what it really means when we say despised. First off, men will always reject, humanity will always reject what it doesn't understand. Humanity fears it, so it rejects it. Paul puts it this way. He says, the cross is always foolishness to those who don't understand. But for you and I, those who understand, it is what gives us life. It is what gives us hope. It is what gives us purpose and meaning. Some people will always think you're a fool for following this. But for those of us who have experienced Jesus, it's what gives us hope tomorrow. And the problem is, it's hard to communicate and convey that sometimes, because even in, even in it, life isn't perfect. Life is still hard. And so some people say, well, if it's so good, why is your life so hard? My life is so hard, because that's the reality of the world we live in, my friends. We live in a broken world that's full of pain and addiction and isolation. And because that's the world we live in, people don't see it. But I often just want to point them back to, but what would my life be like without it? When people see how bad I am now, I often think, you should see me if I didn't have Jesus. Because I would be a mess. Because I know my internal thoughts, and I know what my actions would be. And yet Jesus, because of my relationship with him, I desire to be more like him. Despise means those who believe are acknowledged by God. It says, when we believe, we are acknowledged by God. In other words, God says, yep, I see you. That's a paraphrase of God. But yep, I see you. I recognize you. I know you. You are not alone in this. It can seem lonely, but you are not alone in this. When you're going through the struggle, when your marriage is having trouble, when you're struggling at work, when you're struggling with those things, just know this. As you sit there one day, and just are frustrated and sad and depressed and lonely, know this, God's looking and he says, I see you. That's what it means that he was despised. The third thing that we get from this is there, there is a place for you. There is a place for you in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we feel like we don't even belong in this world. I've had people tell me, I just don't feel like I connect anywhere. And I'm like, well, it's because you kind of don't. 
It says we're aliens and we're pilgrims. Those are the words that it uses. That those of us who follow Christ, we are foreigners in this world. We're told to be in the world, but don't be of it. What that means is you have to exist here, and you have to live an everyday life here. And that life, the purpose is to glorify God with what I am, with what I have, with who I am. It doesn't say your life is perfect. What it says is you're always going to feel like you don't belong, but that's normal because I've got a greater place for you. I've got something more for you. Second prophecy that we see is also out of Isaiah 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. We see that prophecy fulfilled in Mark chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. It says, Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing so that Pilate marveled. Pilate wants him, say something, give a defense so that I can let this go. He even says, I want nothing to do with this. Earlier he says, I wash my hands of this because I don't want to be involved in this. And the interesting thing about Pilate is he is related to Herod, who is the ruler of the area, through marriage, His wife is, again, we are trying to put in a historical context, is either Herod's sister or Herod's daughter, depending on which context you read. So he's married either his father-in-law or his brother-in-law, rules the entire thing. That's how he got his job. And even he goes and he says, I want nothing to do with this. I want to wash my hand of this man's blood. He sends them out and says, no, find someone else. And they come back and go, nope, we want him killed. And so then he's like, come on, Jesus, help me out. Say something. And he just stands there silent. Silence sometimes is our greatest defense. He doesn't need to defend his words or his actions. Anything he says comes across as defensive. Well, yes, I did the miraculous. Okay, so you are saying you did the miraculous. Or, no, I really didn't. So you're denying who you were. Either way, Jesus realizes he can't really defend himself. But he also understands, I have no need to. He allows his actions to speak for themselves, which is a scary thing. Sometimes I think, oh man, actions speak louder than words. I better get on it, because sometimes my actions are not exactly what we want. But he also makes no plea. Jesus understands and he knows what's happening. Just hours before this, as he's sitting in the garden, and he's asked some of his closest disciples to go with him to pray, and they keep falling asleep. And he's frustrated with them, and he says, can't you stay awake just one hour? And he says to God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What he's saying, if there's any other way that we can redeem humanity, I don't want to die. But he also says, but not my will, but yours be done. In other words, the people that you've created, created in your image but given free will, they have to choose. And if this is the way, if this is the way, then I want to see it happen. 
And it's scary for him to remain silent because he knows what's coming. He knows what's happening. He's not uneducated or foolish in this. He knows what he's about to go into. And he did it so that you and I could have a connection with God in a world that we couldn't have the sacrificial system any longer. Israel, since being reestablished in 1948, has wanted to recreate the sacrificial system that they had where you offer animals on the altar, and they cannot get it to happen. An entire nation of people that really want to see this happen, and they can't make it happen, and they want to reconnect with God in that way, and yet we don't have to. We're not forced to. We have the opportunity to go to Jesus and say, I need this. And I can't do it without you. A third prophecy we see fulfilled from the Old Testament. Psalm 22, 1 and 2 says this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. And I'm not silent. And we see in Matthew chapter 27... Starting in verse 45, it says, Now, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. That's about 9 a.m. till noon, in case you're wondering. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is my, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his divinity, recognizes the pain of sin. And I find it interesting that he views sin as separation from God. God hasn't forsaken him, but for the first moment in his existence, even though he was fully human, he was also fully God, and he recognizes a split in that moment. He recognizes there's something that's changed, and what has changed is he's taken the sin of the world. Abandonment What's the cost of the sin on humanity? Separation from God is what our sin does to us. God does not separate from us. We, by willfully choosing to sin, separate from him. And he looks out, and he's on the cross in that moment, and he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experiences a separation from God for the first time in his existence. Separation from God is what we experience every time we sin, and yet we've become so convinced that it doesn't really matter that we don't even call it sin anymore. We give it other names. And we say, well, this is just how I am, and this is just the way I was raised, and this is just... And we come up with excuses for our behavior instead of recognizing what we've done is separated ourselves from the God, the creator of the universe. And yet there's a path to that redemption. And that path to that redemption comes through the sacrifice that Jesus made. Sin separates us, but it's through Jesus' blood, through his death and his resurrection, that we can bridge that divide and come back into relationship with him. Why do the Old Testament prophecies matter? Because they let us know that we're not permanently separated. If it's just the Old Testament and that's where we stop and we don't have Jesus then all we have is a history and an account 
of what happened, not a story of the hope of the future. If we just look at the New Testament, then we don't have the picture of how God's redemption plan began at the beginning of time. And he was never thrown. He was never confused. He never stumbled. He never didn't know what to do when humanity sinned. He knew you would. That's why we need both sides of the story. So why does this matter? Why do these prophecies matter? Number one, gives us a greater view of the arc of Scripture. Like I said, from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, it's one story. Lots of different people wrote the book, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's one story that takes us from here to here. But here's the beauty. The story doesn't end with the resurrection of Jesus. We see all, most all of the New Testament is about the early church and what God wants us to do. And it goes all the way through Revelation. And there's many people that say, Jeff, why don't you ever teach on the end times? Why don't you ever teach on Revelation? And I'm going to tell you right now, here's my philosophy on it. It's not that I don't believe it's true. It's not that I doubt it. I believe a lot of it is speculation on people's part because they're trying to make sense in their human mind something that is far too complex. But here's why I don't do it. Because if I help people understand who Jesus is, which is the most important aspect of all of this, then it doesn't matter what happens at the end because sooner or later you're going to meet Jesus. Either he comes back and you meet him or you die and you meet him. Either way, you're meeting Jesus. And I don't need to convince people because they're afraid I'm going to go to hell if I die right now that that's why they get saved. Because Jesus is not an insurance policy out of hell and I heard him preach that way throughout the 70s and 80s. Jesus has a relationship with the living true God and that should be enough to inspire and motivate me to change who I am. And if the only thing I have is, well, I don't want to go to hell when I die, then I'm missing out on the very purpose of having a relationship with the God creator of the universe. So if people want to talk about end times, that's fine. But understand this, most of what they're talking about is speculation, because even though we read Revelation, we do not understand what this means. And yet I've heard it preached as fact. Oh, this is what this means. These were helicopters that John had a vision of. How do you know? So it's fine. Go ahead and preach it. Talk about it. Have a Bible study about it. But understand this, that is not relevant outside of a relationship with Jesus. And if the only reason somebody gets in that relationship is because they're scared they're going to go to hell tonight if they die, then they've missed out on the very purpose of why Jesus wants us to have a relationship with him in this life. Again, I don't doubt what's written there. I just say, this is the part that I want us to focus on. Second reason that these prophecies matter shows God's plan for redemption. Again, God was never lost. He was never stuck. He was never confused. He looked at you, gave you free will to choose to follow him or reject him, to believe or not believe. And for those that believe, here's the story. Here's what I have for you. And that is a beautiful, beautiful picture that when I choose to believe what he has, then I have hope for my future. And if I choose to reject it, God's not angry. He's sad. Because he has a plan for you and he wants you to experience that. Shows the reality of Christ's divinity. That's the third reason it matters. The C.S. Lewis argument, liar, lunatic, or Lord. Some of you may know the book Mere Christianity. You may have heard that over the years. That was first um, done in a series of radio interviews with the BBC in the 1940s. And that was how C.S. Lewis expressed it. But he actually got that 
idea from Mark Hopkins, originally published the idea in 1846. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he himself was deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There's no other option. He's either who he said he was, he's either crazy, he's a fraud, or he's God. If he's crazy, how did he convince so many people? If he's a fraud, why would people have been willing to die for him? And why would he be willing to lay down his own life? Or he's God. That those are your options. And yes, there are arguments against that. The arguments against that position in the sense that it requires an acceptance of Scripture as authoritative and true. And if we're going to say that we are followers of God, it's true that we do have to. And in other words... When people argue, well, you have to say that this is true in order for that to be true, we call that faith. That I call that faith. If I'm going to choose to believe in Jesus, it does take faith, but it takes faith to live your everyday life. It takes faith to walk out of your house in the morning because something bad could happen. It takes faith to get out of bed in the morning, although let me warn you, I just read the statistic this week, over a thousand people a year are hospitalized getting out of bed in the morning. Apparently, there's more dogs like mine than I realize, because mine are running all around your feet while you're getting out of bed in the morning. Over a thousand people a year had faith to get out of bed and still ended up in the hospital. Life takes faith. Whether you want to admit it or not, it does. The thing is, what am I going to put my faith in? Am I going to put my faith in this? Or am I going to really recognize and say, you know what, it does take faith. And I can't explain everything. But what I can tell you is this. I've had a genuine experience with who God is, and it changed who I was, and he's helping me become who he created me to be. And I can't explain every minute detail of how or why it happened along the way. I can't tell you why I experienced pain or abuse in my life. I can't tell you why I've experienced depression and loneliness, but what I know, none of those things came from God. None of those things were because of who God is. It's because we live in a broken world, and God redeemed those things that had been done to me or that happened to me or that I experienced to help me come into deeper relationship with him, knowing he would see me through even my darkest moments. The argument, the liar, lunatic, Lord argument of C.S. Lewis, both Ronald Reagan in 1978 and Chuck Colson in his book cited these as arguments for changing them to be a person who believes. And that's not that those are our heroes. I just wanted you to understand that this isn't a new argument. Again, C.S. Lewis, it was in the 1940s, and he got the idea from a guy who wrote a book in the 1840s, who probably got the idea from someone else. But still to this day, there's people who go, yeah, that makes sense to me. One of these things has to be true. The reality of Christ's divinity is experienced when we look at the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament fulfillment. And why does it matter? Outside sources, mainly from Josephus, in case you're wondering who wrote most of these, speak directly to the crucifixion of Jesus from a historical perspective. Josephus is a guy who is a historian for Israel during this period of time, and he speaks of Jesus, and he speaks of the crowds that follow him, and he speaks of the crucifixion. Not from a perspective that says, oh, he was the son of God, but from The eyewitness reporter who goes, oh, this is what's going on in our people, in our culture. The reason we have so much history of the Old Testament is the Jewish people 
from the earliest written language had been obsessed with keeping track of their history because they believed they were going to get wiped out. You may not know this, but did you know that the first four Gospels are written? The first one, Mark, written by the youngest of all the Gospel writers, never knew Jesus, and he actually writes it around the year 60 to 65 A.D. He writes it because he looks at all the people that were walking with Jesus and they're all dying out because it's been 30 years and the average lifespan of the day was between 50 and 60. And so here's this young guy. They put him somewhere between late teens and maybe 20 years old. And he sits down. He's like, I better write this down because everybody that was there firsthand is dying. And I want people to know the story of who he is. That's why Mark is my favorite of the Gospels. First one written, didn't walk with Jesus, and he's just a young kid. So it's the easiest language. And I'm not that smart. And he says, I got to tell people these stories because people got to know who Jesus is. They didn't write it because they got great book contracts. They didn't write it because they were given these awesome publishing deals. They wrote it because this is what they lived and experienced. Two of the Gospels are written by people that were disciples with them for the same reason. John writes his Gospel because through, again, this is allegorical, but through what he's heard, he's the last of the disciples. He doesn't know if there's any others living at the point at which he writes his story. He's heard accounts of what's happened and the martyrs that the others have experienced. But he doesn't know. Because again, he's under house arrest. So he writes this story because he wants people to know. And he ends his book with this. One of my favorite scriptures in the entire word of God. Some of you know where I'm going. John 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. I can amen that too. Good job, John. Amen. (laughs) If all the stories of Jesus were written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. And the beauty is, we've closed the scripture, we've closed the canon, but we haven't closed the story. The prophecies of the Old Testament into the New Testament let you and I know the story's still going. The story's still going. And the story goes with you. And it goes with me. And it goes with believers around the world because we can share our story of what Jesus has done for us individually. What he's done for you. What he's done for your parent. What he's done for your child. What he did for someone you prayed for when you saw the miraculous happen. What he did when the miraculous didn't happen, but he still showed up to console us in our grief. told you before, I got in trouble a couple years ago. I was teaching a class on prayer, and I said, and when the person's not healed, you step over the dead body and pray for the next one. And they said that that meant I lacked faith. And I was like, lacked faith? That just shows how great my faith is. I say, I contend just the opposite as I was having this discussion with three people who were upset with me that I was teaching high schoolers that I said, no, my faith is so alive that it's not dependent on whether or not these are the magic hands that heal someone. My faith is so alive that when the person dies, I'm going to step over and I'm going to do it again because God's still going to show up. And you know what? If I pray for a hundred and they all fall dead, the hundred and first may be the one that God's going to heal. And it's still not me. It's still him every time. And I'm not going to stop praying just because the miracle doesn't happen the way I want, when I want, how I want, 
the way I wave my hands, or the way I do something, it's nothing to do with me. Stop going to classes to teach you the magic formula of prayer, people. Just pray. Just say, God, heal this person. And if they're healed, give all the glory to God. And if they're not, go to the next one. That's faith. That wasn't even in my notes. That's how passionate I am. We need to understand that the Old Testament carries us through to the New Testament and the New Testament carries us still through to today. That's what you need to walk away with. Next week I'm going to talk about three more prophecies. I'm going to give you my conclusions next week. That's right. You haven't even gotten to my questions that I asked myself as I was doing this. But I want you to know I don't believe they were just empty words that happened to, wow, that happened to come true. There's too many of them. There's too many of them. And the reality is, God is still working in us and through us today, and he's still fulfilling what he said he would do from the beginning of time till today. He hasn't stopped offering salvation. He hasn't stopped offering forgiveness. He hasn't stopped offering hope. And even though there are times where we're discouraged and we feel defeated and we feel overcome, that doesn't mean he's not working. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who was willing to be a sacrifice for my sins so that I could come into relationship with you. May that become more real in my life. And as it does, may I love more, may I serve more, may I give more of what I have and who I am. We thank you and we praise you for all you do in your name. Amen.